Just a few things in closing today. As we make our way home, what I think is really important to remember is that wherever we're going, our practice is to find our home inside. Yeah? So we're going um, all over the place. Some of us are going back to New York City. Some of us are going um, to other parts of the country here and there. Some of us are staying here, actually, in this environment. And what is really important to remember is that we carry our homes within our hearts. And so the dedication to continuing to develop our hearts, to train our hearts, is what is of most important. In this way, we can find ourselves at home wherever we are, rather than have to be in any one particular place. Meditation does offer us this sense of being at home within ourselves. I remember many years ago reading uh, something that someone who was homeless had written who didn't have a physical home. And of course, so difficult to not obviously have a home, a place to put one's body. But what he said was that what was most painful for him was not not having a physical home, but the fact that he had no home inside. The fact that he always felt homeless within. And this is what meditation touches so deeply within us. When we have an inner discipline like this, when we have a way, a path, a way to actually train our hearts, it's an extraordinary thing. You know, on retreats, we have this chance to look in a wider way at our lives. And so clearly, for most of us, there's some greater sense of perspective that enters in. We begin to see our lives in a greater context. And sometimes we begin even to drop the sense of, you know, my life in a really limited, contracted way. And from time to time, simply sense life occurring in each moment. Just the hearing, just the sensing, just the thinking, just the um, feeling, you know, just simply as it is. And we experience an enormous degree of relief and enjoyment of life in those moments when we're not claiming, when we're not identified with life as being ours in a personal way. But as well, we do um, see our life in a more conventional way with a greater sense of perspective. And this is essential as well. There is a sense of reordering of one's priorities. Lots of times this is what comes out of a retreat. When you go home, one senses a little bit of a difference in terms of the priorities. Instead of the priorities being to be on one's cell phone all the time (laughs) and feel deprived if one is not, Um, instead of the priorities being to feel an enormous degree of satisfaction if we've made it through the lists that we assign ourselves every day. You know, if we've attained nine out of ten checkoffs on our lists, that (laughs) sense of satisfaction that can be there, it's pitiful, you know? (laughs) 
that we would feel satisfied by this. I mean, you know, in the midst of what is really possible for us as human beings in this life, to take the satisfaction of, uh, of um, you know, crossing, crossing off our list. We need to aspire to much, much more in our life. And this is what we get a sense of when we're on retreat, generally. You know, maybe not all the time, but from time to time, or a little whiff of it, or, you know, when something is said, or walking outside in nature, whatever it would, might be, we just get a little sense of possibility of greater freedom in our lives, greater freedom in our hearts, not quite as wedded to the conditions that we find ourselves in. We also find that there is a recommitment to a life of truth and authenticity, a life of compassion and loving kindness. And just having this recommitment is something powerful to bring with us out of this retreat. Just the sense of intention. Everything follows intention. If we can keep this sense of intention alive, of recommitment alive, then everything else can follow the sense of intention. So it's really powerful. It's not a small thing to have recommitted in whatever way that you have to a life of greater authenticity, truth, compassion, and loving kindness. We sense at times, um, out of retreats, a little bit more inner dignity. Just a sense of feeling a little bit more of, of an inner dignity. Sometimes we don't catch this until we leave a retreat. I remember on my first three-month retreat, I had a hell of a time. I, I hope that I exaggerate now how bad it was. <laughs> I mean, it just could not have been the way I remember it to be. In three months, it could not have been unrelenting pain and misery. (laughs) But what was striking to me, and perhaps why I went back for my next three-month retreat, was not masochism. It was because of an enormous degree of dignity that came out of it. It knocked me over. It surprised me so much that out of this time, when I left, things were different. And this is oftentimes what occurs, is an inner sense of dignity, an inner sense of confidence, an inner sense of grace, actually. And then we see something really is very, very beautiful and possible for us on this path. We learn, we're learning the lessons of listening more deeply, you know, of silence, of quietness of heart, so that we can see more clearly, so that it becomes more possible in our lives to stop and to reflect and to respond instead of reacting blindly out of our habits and out of our instincts. This is one of the biggest things that we learn. And as we move out into a world where we're talking and we're going to be moving out into that world in, you know, 45 minutes because of speaking beginning, talking beginning, so a different sense of the world occurring, to see if it's possible to remember this, this stillness that one can tap into within, now this inner silence that is possible to touch, so that we can notice our reactions without 
reacting to our reactions so that we can be aware of our reactions and learn instead the response of that which is deepest within us, wisdom and compassion. So that when we look back on that moment, it is, it is in alignment with our heart's deepest yearning. You know, so we don't have as many moments of regret. Hmm. Oh, Michael was speaking last night about the practice being oriented towards an unconditional peace. Yeah. And we do practice for this reason in, in the deepest possible way, for all sorts of other reasons too, and they're all fine. But as well, for this, this understanding of that which is beyond conditions. And I think it's so important because this is a a certain set of conditions in this environment. You know, there's the silence, there's the form, um, there's the environment itself, there's the guidance, there's the this, there's the that. There's many, many different thought-out conditions that help us to do what I was just referring to. So it's really important when one leaves this environment to not relate to the world as one's enemy, and not to go out into the world thinking that it's a problem, and to relate to um, whatever it is in our life as being inherently mistaken or um, a problem in some way, something that has to be fought with, contended with, struggled with, and instead to see if we can see it just as another moment of life. Forms are different. But you know, we're letting go of conditions. We're seeing that we can be free in the midst of conditions. So in moving out into a greater sense of the world as usual, can we remember that practice can be happening each moment of our life? In every moment that we remember to be mindful, practice is occurring. The development of the heart is happening. The training of the heart is continuing. It is so easy to make a division between being on retreat and being on daily life, in daily life. And as Michael was mentioning at some point during the week, it's so easy when we're in daily life to wish we were on retreat. Now, right now, I'm sure many of us might be, you know, really thrilled to be going out into daily life. You know, the retreat is over, time to party. But then, you know, we'll see at some point there'll be a crunch point of, of, of something happening that we don't like. And then, ah, oh, you know, I wish I were back on retreat. When? And, you know, you would never have had this thought in the middle of the retreat at a really hard time. Now, forget it. I I'm, I'm wish I were on retreat. No, you know, I wish I were off retreat having a really difficult time. And then in those moments, just noticing that the same thing is happening. Yeah, it's the very same thing happening. Wishing one were other than where one is. Always wishing one were other in, in some place other than where one is. Or wishing that things were different than the way that they are. And so much of our path is to see if we can work with this in a different way. You know, a way of non-struggle. Understanding deeply that each moment is precious. And every moment to practice is meaningful. The invitation is 
to integrate the insights that have arisen through the week, no matter how small those insights might seem to you, or no matter how profound those insights may seem to you, the practice is at this point to see if it's possible. It's a wonderful invitation to begin to integrate the the insights and to do it with a sense of feeling heartened, not like, you know, I saw this, I'm, I'm just, it's too much for me, I'm never going to be able to do it. But instead to see if you can see what you might want to apply with a sense of faith and confidence, you know, that this is the invitation. I call it um, domestic dharma practice, <laughs> you know, which means taking all of the elements in one's life as practice, you know, one's daily uh, domestic life, of friends, of intimates, of work, um, of dishwashing, whatever it is, to see if we can take it all as an element that we can pick up and practice with. And seeing so clearly that it's our relationship to these elements that matter. And to um, work as much as possible with an undivided mind. In other words, seeing if we can be fully where we are, bringing that sense of knowing what we're doing into whatever it is that we're doing. Mm. I I know someone who went to Burma many years ago, and um, there happens to be someone in Burma who has memorized all of the teachings of the Buddha, and there's a lot of them. So he's a phenomena in, in Burma. And this person um, went to see me. It's like a tourist attraction. (laughs) (laughs) And this person went to see him and, you know, kind of being American, being a smart aleck, wanting, um, you know, wanting the teaching in bite-sized pieces. He, and maybe wanting to test this person a bit, he said, out of all the teachings that you have memorized, can you put it all in one phrase? And the person, you know, being obviously more than somebody who has memorized the teaching, but somebody who has really understood them as well, said, the teaching is to know what you are doing. This is what the Buddha said. All the instructions come down to this, knowing what you are doing. Yeah. And then you could say, knowing what you are thinking, knowing what you are feeling, um, knowing what you are sensing, knowing what you are hearing. In other words, just from moment to moment, keeping that knowingness alive in the heart and being where we are with what we are doing. Because practice is so much more than form. Now, the forms, they help so much. And at the beginning of the retreat, through the retreat, we're talking form, 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 because they're so helpful. They're invaluable. But in moving out, our forms do change. And we need to be buoyant and flexible Um, and confident enough, a sense of inner sense of being heartened to be able to take up whatever form our lives consist of. And to me, this is the enormous richness possible in life, in having this practice as one's friend, as one's ally. Our great friend in life, our great ally is that of mindfulness. And out of mindfulness coming, wisdom and compassion, living life in a radically different way. (coughs) 
Of course, in our lives, we come up against real crunch points. We come up against times that we have to make decisions. We come up against really difficult situation with family members or in our lives at home or work environment questions, you know, difficulties with our coworkers or with our boss or whomever it might be. Or we find ourselves sick or having a, a chronic illness in some way. We come up against these crunch points in our daily life. And um, one thing that helps so much, I think, is um, patience. You know, there's this wonderful little, little three-liner. Muddy water lets stand becomes clear. You know, muddy water lets stand becomes clear. And what this means is letting things be and sensing our way into them, you know, not punching our way into them or reacting with our usual kind of conditioned resistance to what's happening but instead seeing if we can bring in an abiding sense of loving kindness and patience so that we can see these crunch points with a great deal more spaciousness so that we can know what to do out of being with them um, with more thoughtfulness, with more depth, with more true reflectiveness so that we're not allowing our minds to run us and we're aware of the difference between allowing our minds to run us and thought that is useful, functional thought, thoughtfulness, you know, seeing if we can bring a thoughtfulness. It's actually one of the things that comes out of this practice is being able to discern between the two a little bit more easily. Because without this discernment, we think every thought that comes along is functional, is reasonable, is us, is how things are. You know, we come to this conclusion over and over again. And as we spend more time with ourselves, as we spend more time being mindful of thought, we begin to be able to discern between thought that is useful and valuable and thoughtful and thought that needs to be let go of immediately. And it's, you know, it's something like 95%. (laughs) And not in the direction of holding on either. (laughs) 95% let go of, you know, 5% during the day, useful, functional, helpful. (laughs) But if we don't have a practice, it's just about impossible to see this. It's just about impossible to discern between the two. You know, it all seems to be of great value and true. So muddy water, let's stand, becomes clear. Really relating to these crunch points as our precious jewels. Now seeing if instead of coming to conclusions, we can begin to ask questions. Now, each one of us has our personal area of, of investigation, our personal areas of difficulty, or our personal areas of interest to us. You know, the kind of question that we ask every teacher that we come in contact with, or um, with the same teacher. We ask the same teacher that question for, you know, 10 years or so in different forms, but, you know, one knows it's exactly the same question. It's our personal area of investigation. It's, It's worthy. It's worthy of our respect. Don't undermine your personal area, whatever that may be. See if it's possible, though, instead of relating to it as a problem, which is what we tend to do, to instead to see if it's a chance that we can um, ask questions. We can turn it into a question instead of seeing it as a problem. 
something that maybe more light can be shed upon with patience if we can hold it very, very tenderly as a precious jewel. Yeah. So trying to see it with a, an enormous degree of respect and, and spaciousness. Now, of course, um, there are times that things are very difficult and um, mindfulness is not enough. Our mindfulness has not grown enough to be able to meet whatever it is that we're encountering. And I'm not even talking about you know, big crunch points, but just crunch point every five minutes through the day. There can be a crunch point where we find ourselves in difficulty. Remember the um, metta practice. Remember that it's, it's, if you have a good relationship to metta, if you hate metta, it's a problem. But if you, <laughs> you, you need something else, you need sound or some other place to rest the mind, which is just fine. But if you have a good relationship to the metta practice, um, to just know that over and over again, you can rest in metta. You can rest in the phrases, or you can just remember um, that there is metta. You can rest within your own heart in within metta. And this is a big help to find some degree of peace so that it's possible to open up to exactly what's happening. You know, so not to expect oneself to always just open, 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 and be able to bear with, be with what happens in life. But instead, allowing ourselves another refuge, which could be the metta practice, could be sound, could be the breath. There was a question about the breath last night. Could be the breath. Calming ourselves enough so that it's useful it, to open up to whatever it is, so that we can really clearly see and investigate without being overwhelmed by and exhausted. And then having this other suffering occur, which is that I can't even practice. You know, we have the problem, and then we, then we have the reaction of, I can't even practice. My practice should be better. Um, why isn't it better? Why can't I bear with this? Why can't I open to it? Um, it's, not, it's, uh, it's not like that. Now, it's just simply acknowledging and recognizing and then bringing the attention skillfully elsewhere into one's refuge and then being able to open up from that place. There are three um, essentials in practice in daily life. One of these essentials is sitting. Another is community or sangha. And the third one is precepts. In my opinion, sitting truly is the basis for a sane life. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. I think that if you don't have some amount of time each day set aside to sit, and it doesn't have to be a huge amount of time, but some amount of time set aside to sit, that it's really, really hard in this life of ours to not be reactive, to not be caught up, to not succumb to what it is that is happening in the world, you know, to not um, have a sense of a free heart. So really, really important to make sure that the sitting happens every day. But it's also really important to have modest um, desires in this level because, of course, sitting all day in this environment, um, being encouraged, being guided, being nagged at times, it helps. <laughs> And it's really different when one goes home and doesn't have that anymore, doesn't have the support of others in this environment. And so it's important, I think, to 
um, encourage oneself to not have these ideas it's got to be 45 minutes. Uh, someone mentioned, is 45 minutes a magical number? No, three minutes can be a magical number if you're really sitting for three minutes. Uh, whatever amount of time is, it's better than not. So to really remember that in the sitting, there is a complete letting go. You know? And I'm not saying that the mind is not doing what it's doing, but it's really powerful because in the body being still, it's a real statement to ourselves. Now, it's a, it's a remembering of ourselves by sitting still and not overtly moving in reactivity for or against. Yeah. It's, it's a way of remembering what is most important to us. It's putting it all down, even if for a very short amount of time. So don't get caught up in it's got to be this amount of time or else it's not worth it. You know, every moment of mindfulness is worth it. Even if you leave here and you're not mindful for the next 10 years, 10 years and one moment, if you were mindful that one moment after the 10 years, this would be a great use of one's life. You know? And this is a total exaggeration. Nobody's going to do that. So every moment is worth it. Every moment is worth it because it's always our life. And there's always this fresh invitation it is important in the sitting to not evaluate how you're doing. This is really a conditioning that we have, and it's really important to try to put it down, put it down, put it down every time it comes up. Not to expect it not to come up, but to put it down every time it comes up. You know, to really see the difference between sitting because of attaining a good feeling versus sitting because it's the wise thing to do. You know? And if we sit because it's the wise thing to do, then whatever it's like, it's okay. It's valuable. It's something that is informing our life. Even if in the sitting, one is not having a good time, you, know, you can see that the quality of your life will begin to, see, to change. This is something for um, beginners, and beginners can be a good long, long time. Um, something that sometimes happens is that in the sitting, one is completely lost and confused, but the quality of one's daily life begins to change. And then gradually, over the years of practice, the sitting itself changes as well. But sometimes it's difficult in daily life to see this because one feels so confused and lost in the times that we sit down. And so remembering um, to look at the rest of one's day to see what is changing in one's life, to look from that viewpoint rather from a viewpoint of nothing is happening and it's not worth it. In daily sitting practice and in being mindful throughout the day, you know, in the form of the sitting or, or, or not, resistance runs rampant. You know? It really does. It's such a fundamental aspect that we have to practice with and befriend. And it's really something that is going to be around an awfully long time. Now, so again, not to feel, I remember mentioning in the beginning of the retreat that you don't have to feel like it in order to practice. Try to take that with you as you, as you move out, that you don't have to feel like sitting to be able to sit. You don't have to feel like looking at what's happening to be able to be mindful of the resistance that's occurring to being mindful. That's being mindful. You know? That's being mindful to be aware of the resistance to being mindful. Mm. One can, 
want to do these things and just not find it so easy. And I think it's just really important to encourage ourselves as much as possible. I have a, a sibling who um, really has wanted to practice these things. And over the years, I've given her all the meditative materials you could possibly give one. You know, she has like a million cushions and a bell and books for inspiration and um, you know, scrolls, and probably if you opened one of her closets, it would all fall out. <laughs> because it all is in her closet, you know, it's not out there being, being used. So although she has great aspiration to do these things, it's hard to, to be able to do it. And so often the psychological question will come up, why can't I do it when I want to? You know, why can't I sit? And one is apt to think about all of these personal reasons why. You know, we all get very psychological. Well, because of this, or because of that, or because of, you know, all sorts of reasons. But the reality is that this is something that we share with one another. And it's not that it doesn't change at some point, because it really does. The practice moves from effort to effortlessness, you know, from resistance to non-resistance. So it does completely change at some point. But while we're in this phase, and the phase can be a really, really long time, um, of resisting our life, of resisting being awake, of resisting practicing, it's important to remember that this is something we share with others, and it's a spiritual path. It's not so personal. You know? There are personal reasons, of course, different for, for one person than for another. But really, when it comes down to it, um, it's just resistance. And so the thinking about the why sometimes just takes us further away from actually doing it. It's a, it's a bit of, a, of a, a route around things instead of just simply noticing resistance is happening in the here and now. Can I make some room for it, some space for it? Can I abide with it? Can I be aware of it so that resistance doesn't have to run us our whole life? Another aspect, of course, one of the essentials in daily life is that of community or sangha. And some of us have a community, a sangha, a meditation center near us, and so no problem. You just have to remember to go. Um, oftentimes, to go to a center once a week, if that's avail available for you, is something that I've seen to be quite valuable. You know, so you go one day and you have, you're inspired, and then next day, next day you're inspired, next day forget it, you know, why am I doing this? And then you have a couple of days of just not doing anything, and then you come to the center again and get re-inspired, and then the cycle goes on. So a lot of practice tends to happen in that way. But if you don't have a center near you or um, people near you, it's really, really important to find that somehow, you know? Um, even if it's one person to sit with, it kind of holds one down, you know, to sit with others. Peer pressure helps a lot. Just having others to do this with is not a small thing. I've even known people who um, are, you know, out in Arkansas or whatever and do it on the phone. Just, just have, you know, expensive, yes. But, uh, <laughs> but phone contact with another yogi. If this is meaningful, if this is important to you, which I know it is, um, just to, to try to find community for yourself. And by community, it doesn't have to be a huge community. It can be one person. 
Yeah. And if you happen to find yourself in a situation where there's not even one person, remember the lineage out of which this comes. You know, that this is a lineage. Um, this has been happening for over 2,500 years now. People have been practicing this very same path and have been waking up because of it. And so to connect yourself to the lineage is a really, really helpful thing as well. And then the last thing is just um, just to remind mind us about the precepts and how um, <clears throat> how beautiful and how essential it is to work mindfully and compassionately and with wisdom with the precepts to see the precepts of not harming anyone, of not taking anything that doesn't belong to us, of using our sexual energies wisely and kindly, of speaking in a way that is um, kind and truthful, of not ingesting anything that puts us off course or um, creates confusion in our minds to really work with these precepts, not as obligations or commandments or as shoulds, but because they are the wise and kind way to live a life. They are of enormous benefit to others, obviously. We're less troublesome in life. We're actually gifts to this life, blessings for this life, when we're committed to the precepts. And also, because of karma, you know, everything we do coming back on us in some way, they are the way to protect ourselves at our, as well, a way to protect our lives deeply. So to not take them on as, um, as a should or as an obligation, but to see instead the enormous beauty of taking them on. I do think, though, that without an inner discipline, without undergoing um, uh, you know, the, the sitting and the mindfulness as much as we can from moment to moment, um, we can have really wonderful ideals, but to actually put them into our life when it's so easy not to, you know, when there's something happening where it's the easier route to go against a precept. This is where the discipline of practice comes in, because it gives us the strength of heart to be able to follow our aspirations or our ideals. So um, I think I just want to end with something from the Dalai Lama, which is called Never Give Up. Never give up. No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Develop the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate, work for peace. And I say again, never give up. No matter what is happening, no matter what is going on around you, never give up. And I think that a life of peace, whatever we're doing externally, it all comes from within. We can live a life of peace by attending to non-peace within our own hearts. Okay, so thank you very much. <laughs> um, take it away. Any, <laughs> any questions or areas you want to investigate? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so you can see that you can you can do it as a meditation then, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I've heard I've heard a lot of good things in that way about swimming, about running. Um, the whole thing is, can you be mindful while you're swimming? You know, can you let go? Notice when your attention is elsewhere and you start to drown, and <laughs> it's a good signal that mindfulness isn't happening. <laughs> and then, you know, just um, be aware, let it go, and come back to the physical movement of the swimming. Yeah, yeah. Good. Both of my parents actually were swimming teachers, so I learned to swim at a very early age, and, um, you know, I think it saved the family, actually, to have the swimming because <laughs> of the meditative aspect of it. <laughs> yes. I'm not Gracie. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Yeah. Thank you. I'll have to look at the reruns. <laughs> I'll embrace Gracie. It's, it's really more seeing if when it arises in a natural way, you know, not, not making a thing out of it or a project out of it, you know, but when it arises, 
in a natural way to see how you're holding it, you know, to see if it's, if it's possible to hold it with kindness and compassion. You know, because with thoughts like that, there is a connection to the suffering of others in that, in that moment. You know, you're, you're suffering and you're also in, in having the thought. And then you're also, there's also an empathy for the suffering of others. So there's a connection there. And that connection is human. You know, and that connection is, is as it is. And then it's your reaction to that that would make the difference. So I would wonder whether a better way, rather than, you know, deliberately going to, to um, desensitize yourself, because uh, I don't know that desensitizing is, is ever a good idea. And I think it's more learning the art of opening and letting go, being deeply sensitive without holding, you know, without clinging, without identifying with it. You know? But the allowing it to come in, the swinging door kind of analogy of you're so open that you let it in, but then you let it go. You know, some people don't let it in, so the door is shut. You know? Letting it in, meditation opens us letting it in, and then we're also learning the other side, which is not just to let it in, and which is essential in a human's life, but also as well to let it go. You know, it's compassion and equanimity. And both are essential. You know, you just have the compassion without the equanimity, we fall in, we're overwhelmed by, you know? we're crushed. There's no way that we can actually understand anything deeply and, and live in a different way. You know? So the equanimity is, is essential. The equanimity, if it goes over the edge, would be towards desensitization. You know? And then there's no humanness, there's no compassion, there's no, no heart there. Yeah. So that's the art of meditation, letting it in and letting it go. Um, you know, embracing it, but not clinging. And that I think you can do in the midst of what, what is already happening without, without going to a, a movie. But you know, if you do go to a movie and it just happens, somebody has it, you know, you're not doing it deliberately, um, just see if you can um, practice knowing it's a movie. You know, see if you can practice being aware of your reactions to images, you know, your reactions to what it is that's happening. Okay. Yeah. yeah. is not some, a word that we use in, in this lineage because it's not the sense of um, something bad being within one that has to come up and out. You know, this, sometimes we use the word purification, but it's meant in a really different way than original sin or something, something bad, you know, or, or whatever it is that, that has to come up and out of us in such a personal way. It's more the understanding of getting caught in delusion, confusion, misunderstanding where happiness comes from. You know, so you could say on some level that when we break the precepts, we do it because we, we in, a, in an incredibly confused and deluded way, think that's where happiness is going to come from. We forget completely that if other people aren't happy, we're not going to be happy. We forget completely that pleasure 
is not the source of happiness. Yeah? But it does come out of that delusion. That's the basic force. Yeah? So to see it in a compassionate way, I think, is, is important. Um, the, th- the thing is to see it compassionately and to see it clearly, you know, because we don't want to repeat um, um, suffering. You know, we don't want to repeat these kinds of things. And um, so the remorse is necessary. You know, the remorse is the feeling of it. It's not guilt, which is self-indulgent, you know, which is the ego. I'm such a terrible person. I'm the worst person in the world. You know, we're the, always the center of attraction in that. But instead, um, it's a sense of real remorse, which sometimes, that, you know, that's a very common thing to happen in retreats, and I think it's one of the more valuable things, is um, connecting with ways that we've hurt others. You know? And then that sense of remorse, not indulging in it, not dwelling in it, but knowing it. And then, if it's appropriate, um, doing our best. I mean, first of all, knowing that we don't want to do it again, which is really powerful. Um, and then if it's with a particular person, if it's possible, I think it sometimes is really helpful to, you know, to acknowledge it. It's sometimes really helpful for the other person to know it's been seen and that you see it in a different way. Sometimes it's so healing. And then to, um, if it's appropriate, sometimes it's not appropriate, and this is where wisdom comes in. But when it is appropriate, I mean, you can't do it just for yourself. If it's not good for the other person, then you have to really use restraint and, um, you know, really apologize deeply within to apologize and then to let it go. You know, and then really to let it go, mm. to learn the lesson and let it go. Mm. Was that along the lines? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> right. Well, I j- I'm tempted to just, um, I answered that question recently in an issue of Buddha Dharma <laughs> a magazine. <laughs> so I'm tempted to tell you to go there for it because it's, <laughs> um, but I won't. What? Uh, the most recent issue. It's already out. It's already out. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, what you could say, though, what one could say, is that qualities of heart are what move from life to life, um, which are both wholesome qualities as well as unwholesome qualities. Yeah. If there is metta, metta is transferred. If there is um, um, pettiness or delusion, um, that's what's transferred. And it's obviously, it's a complexity of, of um, states of mind. They're called sankharas that are transferred. And so that's what it is. It's not a personal sense of self or I, you know, I am being reborn into a different life. It's more an understanding of, um, it's the difference really between reincarnation and rebirth. And reincarnation, this sense of an independent entity going from life to life, and rebirth being um, qualities of heart, you know, moving from life to life. So whatever we've cultivated in this lifetime is what moves into the next lifetime. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is how I understand it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, it's sometimes called classically the enemy. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, your enemy force um, expanded. provocative and it's why we don't do it till later in the retreat you know we we, we warm up and then we take on uh, sometimes what is more difficult and so even with the meta you know there's a there's a warming up even in the meta categories if you notice the enemy is at the end you know we start with what's easier and we move to the more difficult so um, it is provocative the thing is that with people who are difficult in our lives they are there anyway uninvited you know, whereas with metta practice, we're saying, okay, bring it on. You know, I'm going to actually deliberately work with this, which is really, really different than, you know, kind of being um, um, overwhelmed by it over and over again or thinking about it over and over again or feeling it over and over again, but there not being any deliberate, and this is where the intention comes in and is so powerful, any deliberate, intentional way of looking at it differently, of actually... Um, seeing if it's possible to transform it, you know, of seeing that maybe there can be these difficult situations in life and there can be these very difficult people for us in our lives and at the same time, it's workable. There's something that is workable in it, which oftentimes does not have to do with the other person changing one iota, you know, as difficult as that is. Because, of course, that's what we would want, and that's reasonable enough. But it um, doesn't matter whether it's reasonable. 
You know, it's not based on the other person changing. It's really based on a sense of, I can do my own work. You know, I don't have to um, be in obedience to this anger. I don't have to let this undermine me. And then, of course, um, you know, not ennobling or protecting or nurturing one's heart in that moment. I really have a choice. You know? I mean, this is what practice begins to offer us, is more and more of a choice. Ah, ah, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, one would hope for that, and sometimes that happens. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes that happens. Yeah, but particularly, I mean, I know you're just beginning, and um, it's it's unusual that that happens with a really difficult person when you first begin, because you're you're building up your. Um, you know, your meta um, genes. You know, you're, you're, really <laughs> you're really building up something, and then you're beginning to be able to apply it. So when you first begin, sometimes, of course, people have unusual experiences, but oftentimes you just begin to see the scope of the problem, which is really wonderful. You know, you just begin to see how bad it is. <laughs> and, you, and you begin to see how clogged up you are because of it. And you begin to see that um, all of the thoughts about it don't matter at all. What matters is that there is a burden in the heart. And then there is more of a sense of, can this be alleviated? Is it possible to alleviate this burden? But if you don't know how bad it is, it's not possible to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So, wonderful. Yeah? Yeah, Bob. Right. 
Yes, yes, yes. I think this is one of the most individual questions in practice. I really do. I don't think that there's one way to go in this, or one formula, or one answer for everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. I, I think that it is um, your dedication to this life, your dedication to a life of practice that is most meaningful. And um, some people have a really strong um, contemplative nature. I mean, I, I do. I have a very strong karmic contemplative nature. And so I love, um, really genuinely love retreats. Um, or have a really strong calling, you know, uh, even on that horrendous first retreat. I knew I was in the right place. I never had any doubt that I was in the right place. I had tons of doubt about everything else, but <laughs> I knew I was in the right place. Um, and there was kind of a certain calling, you know. Um, and so everything was arranged around that for some time in my life. Everything was arranged around being able to do long-term practice. Um, yeah. It's not, I mean, I, right, right. I think it's important, um, just to say a tiny comment in between, that it's not the three-month course that is so magical. You know, it's really, if you have a calling for these things, or you resonate with the contemplative life, then um, finding situations where you have a longer amount of time to practice um, can be invaluable in one's life. But I think what's more important is the sensitivity to one's own path, you know, the deep listening. There are people who definitely, um, retreats are really not the way to go. Um, there are other people who have a concern about retreats, but it would be a good idea to, to sit a little bit more in a, in a contemplative environment. Um, I love this idea of what you said about every Friday. I, I mean, if that's what it comes down to, to sit every single Friday for, what does that mean, half a year? What would that be? Yeah, yeah. Half a year? Thank you. <laughs> I needed some quick math there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... Right, right, right. Right, 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 yeah. I, you know, these things are, are intuitive in terms of what you might see in yourself and what I might sense as well. And for you, I sense that the integration into your, your life is a good thing. You know? In other words, doing the retreats that you are doing because you're very devoted to the week-long retreats. You know, really continuing that, not thinking you don't need them. No, I know. <laughs> I know. But... Um, you know, really, um, really keeping up with that and continuing that. And then I, I, I like this idea a lot. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and I guess I would listen to this um, because I don't know if the uh-oh is, is a good idea to, to do a retreat on, on that, on the basis of an uh-oh. Because I think there can be ambivalent feelings about 
sitting longer retreats, but not not a sense of dread or a sense of anxiety or, or this kind of thing. I think you have to really want to, you know, not, not thinking your experience is going to be so great or whatever, but just have a sense of really it, it not being complicated. I think it has to not be complicated emotionally. Yeah, yeah. I think that that is really important, yeah, for the longer retreats. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I went through a, a time, a couple of years, where I wasn't able to sit longer retreats. And I did this thing of um, a day of practice every week. Um, every Monday was my practice day. And it was fantastic. It was really great. You know, I went to a, a place and, well, actually, I was living in a meditation center, so I went downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> kind of convenient. But I could go in my robe and my PJs and everything. And, you know, um, just sat and walked for the day from early in the morning till even, I think it was just supper time a bunch of times, and sometimes later, later into the evening, and it made a huge difference, huge difference. And I, I felt like I needed it. I felt like it was food. You know, I felt like my life was completely different if I didn't have that day. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you have to renounce a lot to have that day. If there's a lot of renunciation that comes in in terms of finding that amount of time when there's so much else that one could do or feels one has to do or this or that. You know, you have to let go to find it. And that, that is a really positive thing, that letting go, that training oneself in letting go of the non-essential um, is a great training. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for the question. Yeah, yeah Curtis. Mostly what? Mostly going there. Yeah. 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 Did you um, enjoy that way of practice? Did you feel steady enough to do that way of practice? Okay, okay, good, okay. Um, Yes, I do have some things to say, which is that um, if you're practicing twice a day, is your daily practice, do you practice twice a day sometimes, like morning and evening? Okay. Um, so if it's once a day, to divide up the sitting into two parts can be really good. If it's twice a day, one sitting 
one practice and the, the sitting in the evening the other practice. Because um, what we're encouraging is calmness and out of that calmness being able to see into things as they are. And, um, and not, not be choosing what you're going to be attentive to, you know? Like, like the first part of practice is really one object, one of really systemized kind of thing, which even I would say would include the sweeping. That would be, there's a system to that. You know, there's an agenda. Um, there's a sense you're valuing the sweeping over anything else. Yeah. So I would say for half, if, if it's one sitting, for half of the time to work with the sweeping, or um, I would say the metta would be the alter- alternative for you. Okay, so between the two of them, and I don't think that will be confusing because it's just two. I definitely would share your concern about the six, you know, <laughs> because that's too discombobulating to even think of. You'd get exhausted thinking about it before you even got to the sitting. Yeah, so, so I would say either the sweeping or the metta, and they won't conflict, they'll be perfect. And then the other half of the sitting um, opening up. And if you don't feel, if you're on a morning where you, where you feel really unsteady and you feel just confused and you start with the metta or the sweeping and you're completely gone, then I would stay with the metta or the sweeping for the entire time. You know? And not to assess it or feel like you should be getting to choicelessness or anything like that. Just to you know, assess what you need in that way. Yeah. And then if you're doing two sits, if that changes at, at some point you do two sits, then I would say one sitting, um, just the sweeping or the, or the metta, and then the other sitting to open up. But in daily life, I have to say, opening up is a whole lot harder. I mean, as you, as you noticed in this retreat, we spent three or four days um, yeah, just being with um, one object, basically. And then we opened up after there was steadiness and concentration. And in daily life, because of the conditions being different, and because of not doing this moment after moment after moment, hour after hour after hour, oftentimes the choicelessness is, we just find ourselves lost and lost in thought. And um, it's not really all that useful. Yeah. So just to let you know that that's sometimes what happens. And then if that is your reality, which is for most people, a lot of people anyway, then just um, stick with either the sweeping or the metta. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm getting the. <clears throat> <laughs> so, um, maybe one more question. One more question. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is it, Grace? Alan, not Alan. George. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think that Mm. And so, I guess the question is, like, am I, is it too weird? Mm. Is it that mm. I'm too mm. aware of 
<laughs> it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it depends, you know, because there's different levels. First of all, there's different levels of awareness. And secondly, there's different levels of being lost in thought. You can be deeply lost in thought, and a million things can happen, and you're so lost you don't even know it's happened, right? And then there's like a lighter level where you're lost, but you're, you know, it's kind of like being semi-conscious, where you're lost, you're not here, you're not present, and you're sucked into the thinking, but um, it's a lighter level, yeah. So I guess if I had to guess, which is all I'm doing, it, it would be that lighter level of, of being lost in what you were describing. And it's not to say that there wasn't a lot of, you know, aliveness and presentness to your environment. It's not to say that at all. It's just that um, probably there wasn't a continuity of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just that's the most likely thing because that would be, you know, extremely enlightened. So <laughs> that's why I'm guessing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's just sit for one, one short but strong moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.